This is the recording made in the chapel of the opened book under the covering title of Christian Fundamentals and the series now in progress is the one dealing with redemption and its consequences. The subject of it this evening is concerned with the cities of refuge and their lessons. It is our habit at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together first and those of you who are listening to this recording if you care to join us we ask you just to switch off for a little while and read Numbers 35. I felt that we should benefit by patiently reading that very solemn chapter, just the same as we benefited by reading the passage which includes the Jubilee and see how it was incorporated in the life, the property and all the business transactions of the people of Israel. You will meet with some people who will lift out from Scripture the words, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and then they'll accuse you of believing in a bloodthirsty Jehovah. The truth of the matter is this, that if God hadn't said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the vendetta would have been one whole village sacrificed for one eye. That's what was done. The eye for an eye was an element of mercy. It wasn't a vendetta. It was preventing a vendetta. And then our Saviour took it a stage further when in the Sermon on the Mount he said it has been said to you of old time an eye for an eye. But I say unto you he says I'm taking that a stage further. I'm not contradicting. I'm only saying the very spirit that prevented one man having the right to massacre a whole family. I'm now saying well take it a stage further. You see? So we've got to be very watchful. We don't misunderstand. These laws were made when the world was young and when there was much that had to be done by the person themselves. They didn't have a police force as we had. They didn't have all the various things that make the law and order in the same sense. And so, the Kinsman Redeemer comes very prominently into the scheme of things you find references to the kinsman redeemer if your eyes are opened in passages that you might not quite be sure about. There's one passage I remember because of a mistake I made, or no, a pardonable mistake on the part of the printer. I had quoted the words, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And the printer looked at my writing, I suppose he turned it upside down and couldn't make it any better. And he said to his foreman, well, what do you make of this? Oh, he says, I think that means some trust in charity and some in works. A very good idea, wasn't it? Because it was up-to-date retranslation, but we couldn't let it stand. Well, that man was saying, some are trusting in the help that's coming by chariots and horses, but I'm going to call upon the name of my kinsman Redeemer. And when I call upon him, he's duty-bound to come to my rescue. The moment Lot was taken, a captive, Abraham didn't have to hesitate and say, now I wonder whether I'd better go or not. He armed his servants and off he went. He was under an obligation because he was his king's man. And then you will remember that the king's man figures very much in that wonderful story of Ruth. How she was, a, she practically put it to him, you've got to marry me. I'm in neck a widow, I have no children, 
the inheritance is suspended, and he said, I will, and that there's a king's man nearer than I am, so we must get him out of the way first, and he did, and he married the woman, and one thing Ruth could never do, she could never lose her inheritance, it was only Boaz could do that. And you take the story a stage further and say, one thing can never happen to me, I can never be lost or lose my inheritance, only the Son of God can do that, and blessed be God, there's no doubt about his ability to endure and to hold fast. Well now, the next thing for us to remember is this, that the word gale, G-A-A-L, or G-O-E-L, according to the way it comes in a sentence, which is translated kinsman and translated redeemer, is also the word avenger, the very self-same word. You remember there are passages where we have them come together. The year of my redeemed has come, and the day of vengeance is in my heart. The two together. And if you will turn to Job, the 19th chapter, for a moment, you will observe that in that passage which we love so much, when Job comes right out with it, and he says in verse 25, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Well, he was not only thinking of him as, a, as his Redeemer, he was thinking of him in his twofold capacity. I know that my kinsman Redeemer liveth, and I shall stand with him, and I shall see him, but he says to those others, if you'll notice, verse 22, Why do you persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? Verse 28, But you, yet ye would say, if you knew only this, Why should we persecute him? Why persecute we him, seeing the root of the matter is found in him, in me? Be ye afraid of the sword, for wrath bringeth punishments of the sword, that ye may know that there is a judgment. He's warning these men that if they keep on with their attitude to him, that kinsman redeemer about whom he speaks will also make an inquisition as to what they are doing and why they are acting as they are. The kinsman redeemer is the avenger of blood, the very self-same word. The two go together. Well now, when we think of the idea of this provision, the city of refuge, so that the man who has then no enmity in his heart, the man who hasn't plotted and used a weapon which he knew would be lethal, if the avenger of blood got him, well, he would slay him. That was his duty. But a provision was made for the frailty of our nature during this present world in which we live. And you and I, many a time, have to flee for refuge and come to the throne of grace that we may find help in our time of need because of the slips we make. If God marked iniquity without any reservation and without any margin, which one of us would stand free? And so we've got a little graciousness creeping into the law, just tempering this element of vengeance with an opportunity to get some respite. It's also interesting to know how this feeling of a need for a refuge seems to permeate other scriptures. I've just jotted down a few here. I don't know whether you notice me sometimes, but almost at the moment I'm going to start speaking. I start scribbling. Well, that's generally because I've always forgotten that. And then I look at it and I can hardly read what it says. But I do interpret this little squiggle at the top. The everlasting arms. It's 
certainly an English rendering of something which doesn't say anything about everlasting arms. But it is a wonderful thought, isn't it? Underneath are the everlasting arms. The margin, I think, says the rock of ages. Well, again, a wonderful figure. Or we have lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Or again, thou art my fortress and my high tower. And then, another one which is so blessed. You could think of a fortress made of solid stone or a rock that's almost impregnable, but under the shadow of thy wings. A shadow is a very impalpable thing, isn't it? It doesn't seem as though there's much protection under a shadow, but isn't it good to know that the very shadow of his wings is enough if we are only there in faith? Well now, the first thing is to remember that embedded in this Numbers 35 are those words that recur, he shall flee for refuge. And then you remember in the epistle to the Hebrews, he uses the very words about those who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. As though he would incorporate in his teaching to the Hebrews something of the spirit that they must remember when they come to the throne of grace. Flee for refuge. That is in Hebrews chapter 6. Well now I think I must divide the subject up this evening a little bit. Otherwise perhaps I shall be spending too long on one part. The first, the general references in scripture to a refuge so that there may see their contexts. And secondly, just have a glimpse at the cities of refuge themselves, the way they were appointed, the names they were given, and then, at the close, a new examination and a possible reinterpretation of a well-known passage at the end of Hebrews, the ninth chapter. I don't expect we shall have much time to do other than that if we do it as thoroughly as the subject demands. Many, many years ago, when I was just a young Christian beginning, I was very much helped by an older man who was in the London City Mission and I could remember him this day saying to me, he says, he says, I go along the street and I'm knocking at the doors and I'm being called all manner of names and half the time it seems as it's worth a while and when I get to the corner of the street, he says, I say, Oh, my Redeemer, what a friend thou art to me. Oh, what a refuge I have found in thee. The pop, and he knocks again another street. Well, it left its mark on me. I thought, yes, that man had found a refuge for all those disappointing things that were to make up the daily round and the common task of many of us. All friends, don't neglect the fact that God has provided you and me with a refuge. And what a refuge we find in him. So now we'll begin to consider the way in which this is used. Now, the first passage is in Deuteronomy 33, 27. Right at the very end of uh, Moses' life, practically. In the blessing of Moses, these words occur. 27. He says in verse 26, There is none like unto the God of Jeshurim, 
who rideth upon the heaven in thy help, and in his excellency on the sky. Strange wording, riding in thy help, but possibly we can see that his riding on the heavens not merely to make an exhibition or a procession. It's in thy help. Oh yes. And now he comes again nearer. The eternal God is thy refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. That's where those words come. What I want to mention today particularly is the bearing upon the word eternal in this verse. You know that there are a number of words translated eternal and eternal everlasting. Some of them deal with time and some of them deal with character and most of them have nothing to do with eternity. But the Bible is a brackets within eternity and deals with time. It starts with the words in the beginning. Well you can't talk about eternity if you start in the beginning. And the last words are in 1 Corinthians 15, then cometh the end. And you can't talk about eternity if it's got an end. I know my mother used to say forever and a day after, and it used to be rather a puzzle to me. I listened to it. But that's what the Bible says. When it says forever and ever, it's unto the omen and the end, unto the age and then beyond. But that isn't the word here, so I won't enlarge on that. This particular word, I'll spell it in the English letters, Q-E-D-E-M. It means to anticipate, to go in front, to be there beforehand. I've got some references here, Jonah uses it. Or when he speaks about, um, I anticipated this, he said when he was speaking to God. I anticipated this. I knew that thou weren't going to be kind to these Ninevites, and that's why I fled to Tarshish. He told God. Well, I'm not going to take that line, but this is the point I want to make. That the refuge that we have has been prepared by God who anticipated all that you'll ever have to go through. All the attacks of the enemy. All the things that he may invent. All the traps for your feet. Isn't it good to know that the God who anticipates, the God who's in front, the God who's never taken unaware, is thy refuge. The very few friends we have can be put into that category. They nearly always know when it's all over and tell you, don't they? And then of course you know as well as they do. But isn't it good to have a friend you can go to who says, all right, I know, and I've prepared beforehand. It's all ready. So we have that, I think, to help us. Well then, instead of enlarging on that and stopping there too long, we'll go to Psalm 46 and see another phase, which is also blessed, in connection with the idea of a refuge provided for his people. Psalm 46. God is our refuge, and strength. I wouldn't like to say for certain that that means our strong refuge, but it's very likely, because that is the way in which the Old Testament language often speaks to make it very much more insistent. Not merely a strong refuge, but our refuge and strength are strong one. But the point I want to make is not so much that it's strong, it is, but it's a very present help in trouble. 
It doesn't matter what sort of refuge you have if it's not there on the spot when you want it, friend. Is it? How many people when the war was on might have been saved if they had not been so far away from the refuge that was provided? But we are not concerned about that. That's God's provision. He himself is a very present help in trouble. There's one thing he can be. He can be in two places at once. You and I cannot. But he can be with his people wherever they are in whatever circumstances. So we've got two things there to encourage us. He's one who anticipates and can prepare for all emergencies. You cannot take him by surprise. And he's there whenever you want him. A very present help in time of trouble. So you look at this, you'll see the way in which this writer seems to enjoy this refuge and begin to appreciate it. He says, therefore will not we fear though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea Though the waters thereof roar to be troubled, though the mountains shake with the sweating thereof. Well, if that's to be taken literally, I don't see why it shouldn't. That's a dreadful experience to feel the very solid ground beneath your feet moving, the house trembling, crockery breaking, because you're absolutely without power to, to control it. And yet he says, therefore will we not fear. And then he puts a little word sedar in, which is always wise to watch. It nearly always means, now look at that picture, now turn round and look at this. Instead of waters boiling and bubbling in trouble, he says, there is a river. The streams whereof shall make glad the city of God. The holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. See, they're moving violently outside. But where God is, he's calm. God shall help us in that right early. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. Oh yes, they're moving. Kingdoms are moving, mountains are moving. But if you know this refuge, you can remain at peace. And then again, we read further down, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Stillness in the midst of all the havoc, all the clash of worlds, all this turmoil, be still and know that I am God. And then again he repeats what he said in verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God not of Israel. Israel was the prince with God, the God of Jacob, the one that sometimes we think is a little bit uh, not too straight, he wasn't an Israelite without guile. Jacob wasn't. And it's the God of Jacob. Poor Jacob. The one who didn't show up very well at the beginning. Because you see, if he said the God of Israel, we might have said, I don't know whether I dare go. But you could all go the name of Jacob, friends, and if you don't know it, some of your friends have said something like it before now. God knows. He's made a provision for Jacob. Well, there we have two references. He's present. Shall we look at Psalm 62? 
Psalm 62. Truly my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. He is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I should not be greatly moved. I do like the way the man doesn't boast. He says I should not be greatly moved. He, he was doing a little bit of a tremble, you know. And of course that man who fears nothing, he's not a brave man, is he? It's the man who does fear, who nevertheless goes through with it. He's the man to follow. He says, I should not be greatly moved. How long will ye imagine mischief against the man? Ye shall be slain, all of you, as a bowing wall and a tottering fence. Now that doesn't mean much to us. But that's the sort of wall they had along the rough lanes in Palestine. A bowing wall and a tottering jeddah or fence. What a difference between a refuge into which you can run and be safe. Should we look a little bit further into this thing? Verse 5 and 6. My soul, wait thou only upon God. For my expectation is from him. He only, only, he said, only. And I want to draw your attention to the word truly in verse 2. In verse 1. Because the word truly is the same as the word only. So we'll put it again. Only, my soul. You wait only upon God. He only is my rock. My soul, wait thou only upon God. Verse 6, he only is my rock. If we say it many more times, we'll believe it, shall we? Only. You see, that's almost an inspired verse, isn't it? Because the man was so near to God, I believe in his heart when he wrote it, Other refuge have I none, hangs my helpless soul on thee. Only, 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 no other. And in verse 9, Surely, this is again, men of low degree are vanity and men of high degree are lie. To be laid in the balance are altogether lighter than vanity. And so he says, in verse 2, I'll come back, I should not be greatly moved. And when he said it all over again, he says in the end of verse 6, I should not be moved. He leaves the word greatly out of it. Oh, he's progressing, isn't he? First of all, he's not greatly moved. And then when he said it all over again, he's received more strength, and he's not moved. And that's one of the characteristics of a Christian who knows his feet is upon the rock. And that rock is Christ. And at the end of the great chapter which deals with Christ, the risen one, and the victor, the exhortation is, Be ye therefore steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Steadfast, unmovable. So we have the idea of not being moved and not greatly moved. And then I just found this verse of a hymn. I quoted one at the beginning that the London City Mission had left in my mind. And here's another one that takes me right back to my early days. How oft in the conflict and pressed by the foe I have fled to my refuge and breathed out my woe. How often when trials 
Like sea billows roll, have I hidden in thee all thou rock of my soul. The one who wrote that, he knew a little bit of the refuge that God had provided. Now while we have this in front of us, let us look at Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. Uh, this is not evidently an organized orthodox prayer meeting. He didn't have to go somewhere at a certain hour to pray. He says, from the end of the earth. And to a, a person in those days, to think about praying from the end of the earth was a big step because at Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the temple, was the place where prayer was to be made and sacrifice offered. From the end of the earth would I cry to thee, when my heart is overwhelmed. So is a man admitting that his heart can be practically overwhelmed. And there are a few of us who go through life without meeting certain circumstances at times which have a very overwhelming effect upon us and almost break us, almost bring us down. And we are far away at the ends of the earth then in our, in our experience. And all we can do is to cry. We can't make a long prayer and tell God all the circumstances and everything and tell him what to do. We just cry. And then we ask for the only thing that's the answer to our problem. Lead me. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. If ever we want someone who is a greater person than Joseph's son, the carpenter's son, merely Jesus of Nazareth, we want him now. The one that is higher than I. Oh, he was the Nazarene. He was despised and rejected. But he was infinitely more than that. Otherwise, how could he be a refuge for you and for me and all the countless millions that have fled to him and found him all-sufficient? Another thing which this psalm says, that your past experiences should be stepping stones to higher things. For thou hast been a shelter for me. You see, he says, I'm praying again now, for I've tried it once and it was true. Thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide. Now the word abide means to remain. And you see, the safety of the man who, read, who fled for refuge was to stop there. If he started wandering outside and going off on his own, that was his responsibility. He might be caught and he could be put to death. As long as he remained within the precincts of the city of refuge, he was safe from the avenger of blood. So he said, I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust. Or, the margin says, I will make my refuge. Well, of course, it's another way of speaking of trust. I will make my refuge in the covert of thy wings. The covert of thy wings. And you remember our Saviour picks out that very figure? And as far as I know, it's the only quotation that he ever made from the Apocrypha, but he does. He says, how often would I have gathered thy children as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. That's the figure. A fleeing for refuge. The next time you 
and out in the country and you see that little scattering bundles of you know, yellow fluff running across to an old head that's clucking away. You say, there's a picture for you. Oh, if only we could do that in time of need, how much better we should be. And so when we retranslate the refuge to the throne of grace, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we might find mercy and receive grace to help in every time of need. Well, I think that's so far as I can go with regard to the general statements in connection with a refuge. And I dare say, you are sitting there and you can supplement by many more. It's a subject which is threaded through the scriptures because it's after the heart of God and his wonderful provision. Now, we'll go back and have just a quick look at Numbers 35, uh, just to see a point or two that may be necessary to lift out, without taking too much of our time. I notice the, the fact that the Lord didn't make the mistake that some housing authorities have done, and they built their cities and they didn't provide suburbs. Here they have provided, and they're told how much they've got to be, and they're to keep their cattle and their goods and their beasts, and have a sort of little green belt round them. And then after that, these cities, no, not ordinary cities, cities that belong to the Levites, you see the cities may be commercial centres, they may be uh, just worldly places, but the cities of refuge were taken from the cities that were belonging to the Levites, and the Levites were the priestly family, and so we're now brought into touch with uh, the mediation of the priests, their sacrificial system. And we are told there were six of them. Some people would like to, of course, there have been seven of them. But that's because we misunderstand. I see people struggling hard to make seven items in the armour of Ephesians 6. You see? But you see, it's perfectly right. It should only be six items of armour because when we get to glory, we shall want them at all. You're not going to strut about in armour in glory when there's no enemy, are you? You don't want it. And I don't think they'll even have a Tower of London with a wall hanging up to look at it done with. See what desolations I've made in the earth. I've broken the bow and I've put the chariot to the fire. She finished it. Six items of, ar- of armour. Good. So we have here six cities because the day is coming when you won't need any one of them they're all over and finished God will wipe away all tears all sickness all sorrow all death and all these other things which are provisionally covered during this waiting period now these six cities are indicated and we are told in the scriptures that three of them were to be on this side of Jordan, and three on the other side of Jordan. And the two sets of references where the names are given, if you want them, is Deuteronomy chapter 4 and Joshua chapter 20. You'll find the verses. All I've done is to indicate on the top, it's not very, very strong in colour, but you know the map of Palestine is divided by the River Jordan, and the Dead Sea, so there is a good basis for the idea that Jordan, in type, represents 
death, over which Joshua and the host passed into the land of hope and glory, although of course it wasn't quite the real thing then, it was but another type. But there was the river of Jordan running down to the Dead Sea, and God didn't say, now when you go over Jordan, I'll provide cities of refuge for you. Well, you may have turned around to the Lord and said, if you don't provide it before I get there, I may never get there, Lord. So he's provided for us now, friends, this side of Jordan, in the land of Og, king of Bashan, in the land of Sion, those who were the Canaanite opposers, in those very lands, before they crossed the Jordan, he's got three cities of refuge there, and three cities of refuge there. The name, whether they are to be taken and all translated into types and shadows, I don't know. We don't want to be too fanciful. But I've given you the name. The, the one at the very top is Kadesh, which means holy. We do want to remember that we are dealing with a God who is holy, and this provision is because he is holy, because he cannot let these things go without reference to the need for a saviour in all our predicaments. And then on this one we have the word Shechem, and that means a shoulder. And the shoulder is used both of the high priest who bears the name of Israel on his shoulder, and it's used of Christ as the Prince of Peace, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And we have borrowed from the Greek uh, legend, put your shoulder to the wheel. You remember? The idea of bearing a burden, you, uh, authority, and ability. And then we have the third one, Hebron. A place associated with fellowship with God, but its first meaning is a ford. And uh, we do well to remember the fords that are mentioned. Because without a ford, we cannot get across a river. And without getting across a river, we may fail, we may die. If you've never done so, stand and look at the map of London and start going out one of the main roads from the centre, I'll guarantee you won't go very far before you come to a place with the word Ford in it. Hill Ford, Rom Ford, Brent Ford, all, all the way round, wherever you go. Well, naturally, it's no good starting a road from the centre of London that you couldn't get out of it. So they all made for a place that was fordable. Now, this is going to help me to quote in passing from the writings of um, John Lightfoot, 1600 and something, delved very deeply into rabbinical and Talmud writings, and he says, with regard to um, the provision made by Jewish law, outside the law of Moses, the little extras they did, he said that they must make roads that lead to these cities of refuge, now, I could hardly believe my eyes, but I've copied it out in very, very plain figures for once. 32 cubits broad. Now, a cubit is near enough for us, roughly, say, what? Do we say a yard, or do we say two feet, or do we say one foot? But it's a good-sized road, isn't it? Anyhow, 32 cubits broad. And that there should be no hillocks left in it. It must be leveled. The rough places must be made plain. There must be signposts, especially where roads fork. Well, those people would have immediately appreciated the principle of rightly dividing the word of truth, so that you didn't take a wrong turning. But it meant life or death if it did in those days. 
but it may do so sometimes now. And these, and there were, whenever there was a river, there must be a bridge. Oh, what a need there is for us to remember when we're preaching the gospel. It's not good enough to tell men to come back to God. It's to tell men, if you want to come back to God, you must find Him who is the bridge. Who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you're stuck on the wrong side of the river, it may be again fatal. And then, you notice that according to the uh, possessions of these people, so they contributed either little or much, God acting in that gracious way with regard to them. They all contributed. Well now, I think our time will be very rapidly passing. I want to turn just for a moment to Hebrews the ninth chapter. I'll, I'll just give you the verse in the sixth chapter where we have the words flee for refuge. Chapter 6 verse 18 that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. Isn't it good to know something that's impossible with God? I know we like to quote the words all things are possible to him but I'm glad there are some exceptions. He cannot tell a lie. He's trustworthy to the last limit. We might have a strong consolation who has fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Fled for refuge is the word that we've got in Numbers 35. Now I turn the page and chapter 9 starts straight off with the tabernacle. And it goes on to make a contrast between the work of Christ and the work of the high priest. Verse 11. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of bulls and uh, goats and calves, or his own blood, and so on. Then if you look at chapter 10, for the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not that any image is going on with the very same argument. But I don't need to waste our time in God, not wouldn't be waste, but time going quickly, to read the whole of chapter 9 to show you he's talking about the high priest and his sacrifice and the contrast between that and the great sacrifice of Christ all the way through, all the way through 9, right the way through into chapter 10, so that when we read verses 27 and 28, we are reading a part of an argument which has to do with the priests and his work in contrast with Christ and his work. Now in the ordinary way, when we read these words, verse 27, it's very often quoted like this, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. And we can lift it out like that, and we could preach it like this, it is appointed unto men once to die, and the wages of sin is death, and you're for it, and you make a gospel service of it. But this is talking about men who were priests who die. Look at chapter 7, verse 23, for they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. They died. And then there's one instance where it's, it was a very blessed thing. The man who fled for refuge had to wait in that city until the death of the high priest. And when the high priest died, he was free. What is it? As it is appointed, so Christ 
Don't you see we've got a, a figure of speech here? They must have some, something in harmony. As something, so something. As Moses lifted up the serpent, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So, as it was appointed in the past, in this law of the city of refuge, for these men, these high priests, once to die, and after this, the judgment, what we read the very passage, that at the death of the high priest, they assembled together, and they sat in judgment, and I looked it up, and I found the very identical word that's translated judgment here, is the one adopted by the Septuagint there. So this is the judgment, not to condemn a poor rich, but to set him free. Have you never prayed, oh God, judge me? Well, some people did in the scriptures, and they weren't saying, oh, condemn me, because if you're right, you want to be judged. It's only when you're wrong and afraid of it, you, you don't like the judge and the magistrate and the policeman and all those people. So we come to the next. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, but now he who died rose again. Oh, he's in contrast, you see. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, all different. You can't take it all onto him, he goes beyond. And so the suggestion is, as I put at the bottom of this chart, you see, the two, as the men die once, and judgment liberated that poor soul under the law, so Christ also was once offered, and when he comes, to those who look for him, he shall appear the second time, without a sin offering, and no reference to sin, but unto salvation, and salvation in a deeper and richer sense than can ever be set forth under the types and shadows, the shadows of the law. Now I hesitated before this meeting as to whether I would give this subject a bypass and not take it. And yet I felt that we ought to be acquainted with some of these merciful provisions that God has put in his law, however faintly they may forecast our own uh, experiences and what Christ is to us. Because we can see this, that if we can rejoice to think that there were these provisions, and they led the psalmist, and the prophet, and the lawmaker, to keep on referring to a refuge, and a tower, and a rock, and a shadow, if it laid upon their hearts and consciences like that, how much more should we be able to turn to the one and only, you remember the psalm, only, only, the only one we have, and not neglect the provision that is made. Come to him at all times. You don't have to, you don't have to hide anything from him in prayer, for he knows before you come. The trouble is, we try to hoodwink ourselves, don't we? But he bids you to come. He's made provision for your prayer to. He wants you to have a protection here, even as you're going to be blessedly free from the need of it in the day to come. So I once more quote the hymn of my old friend, the London City Missionary. Oh, my Redeemer, what a friend thou art to me. Oh, what a refuge I have found in thee. May we know what it is to flee for refuge at time that we can indeed trust him at all times as the psalmist did that.